0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kathleen McLean. I work in the Education Department here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's my pleasure to welcome you and to welcome back a lot of you to our sixth lecture in association with the Tutankhamen exhibition. Um, Tonight is Roberta Shaw speaking on the topic of glamour and vogue in ancient Egypt. Um, Roberta Shaw is Assistant Curator of Egyptian Arts and Culture at the Royal Ontario Museum. Her field work in Egypt has included epigraphic assistance at the Temple of Karnak and research in Theban tomb number 89 at Luxor. She has worked on the development of the visitor center at the Temple of Deir el-Hagar in the Dakla Oasis and the prehistoric display at the Karga Museum in the Karga Oasis. Roberta's exhibition work at the ROM includes the development of the Ancient Egypt and Nubia Galleries opened in 1992 and the traveling exhibition Egypt Gift of the Nile she worked as a guest curator of the Canadian Museum of Civilization exhibition Mysteries of Egypt and co-curated with Christoph Grimsky um, the exhibition Canadians on the Nile which showed in Toronto Paris, Poznan, and London. She was the assistant curator for the ROM showing of Egyptian art in the age of the pyramids and co-curator of Eternal Egypt Masterworks of Ancient Art from the British Museum. She has consulted for the Bahrain Museum of Pearls, the American Research Center in Egypt, the American University in Cairo, and lectures on mummification, beauty, food, textiles, and the art of ancient Egypt. We're delighted to have her with us tonight and I'd like to ask you to join me in welcoming
1: her. Thank you, Kathleen. Hello, everyone. I'd like to um, open with um, 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 a verse from an ancient Egyptian love poem. She um, casts the noose on me with her hair. She captures me with her eye. She tethers me with her necklace. And she brands me with her seal ring. And I think uh, just looking at these two beauties here, you can see why this Chap is completely enthralled, wrangled by his love. As a matter of fact, and the illusion, of course, is um, capturing um, a young calf and uh, bringing the calf down and and branding. Lots of evidence for branding cattle in Egypt, done just exactly the same way that they're doing it out west today. So, uh, so let's get moving on what on beauty and vogue in ancient Egypt and what makes these people so beautiful, or what made them so beautiful, although. I'm just back from Egypt, as a matter of fact. I, imagined I, I managed to spend most of the winter there. so um, And they're still pretty beautiful today. They haven't changed much. I, I keep looking at Egyptians, and I, I, I see sort of... I just see these people walking right off the tomb walls. Um, you've got here a typical painting of um, an idealized... Uh, version of perfect womanhood, and this, of course, is in a tomb. Many of our paintings are, most of the paintings are tombs or temples, of course, and this actually is a daughter and mother-in-law, but as you can see, because they're there for eternity, they are in the perfect, um, beautiful form, and they're both essentially looking exactly the same age. Um, The difference in skin tone, I will tell you, is um, probably, um, it's, it's an artistic uh, conceit. It's so that you can, you can overlap figures in Egyptian art and you just change the skin tone a bit. It has nothing to do with what is really the color of it, a- ancient Egyptians. It just makes it easier to distinguish between the two figures. This, by the way, I consider one of the finest paintings um, out, out of ancient Egypt. It's um, an 18th dynasty tomb in the Theban area where, where I have worked on, on tomb 89. Let's take a look at uh, what the Egyptians thought of as as a good body, as an ideal body. And first of all, we've got... Ron Effer here from the Old Kingdom, and I think most of you probably at this point don't really need a lesson in history, ancient Egyptian history, the great antiquity of it. Suffice to say, if I'm, I'll, I'll refer probably to Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom, Late Period, and it's really easy history. Old Kingdom is 2,500, Middle Kingdom is 2,000, New Kingdom is 1,500, and Late Period is around 1,000, so you have these 500-year chunks. Um, when Egypt had these wonderful, glorious eras, this is an Old Kingdoms. Uh, two statues of the same official, and although um, um, a- again, here's here's your perfect male body, which is you know pretty. It, it's young, it's youthful, it's taut, it's healthy, you know. Of course, this is this is to be expected. Um, if you'll notice, um, Ron, Effer on the right is just a little softer in his body. You know that dividing line up the middle is just a little softer. His 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 pectorals are a little softer, and he's he's just a little bit wider. Plus, he's got a longer skirt on. So, in the Old Kingdom, the age came with a slightly softer body and a longer skirt on the gents. And it's just a recognition of of him in his youthful vigor, and him in his success of old age. Old age was, you were supposed to be by then, very successful and prosperous. And part of the prosperity, of course, is you were able to eat a lot of food and put on a little weight. But they always were constrained with that ideal body for eternity. These things are placed in tombs. You want to be perfect for eternity. Now, when they wanted to, they did... They did depict weight, and uh, it's rare, but we've got an Old Kingdom figure here. This is Hemiunu on the left. He is the, the engineer. He's a prince. He's the son of of, of, of Khufu, or son or nephew. And um, he was the engineer. He's was the man in charge of building the Great Pyramid and, and certainly a fat and happy cat and unashamed to depict himself as he was, um, probably had so much confidence after building that pyramid successfully. At any rate, he, he is there. This is a li- an over life-size figure, and if any of you went to the Old Kingdom show at the ROM a couple of years back, that figure was there, and it's certainly imposing. And, th- and on the right, we got um, a much a, a later figure, a New Kingdom figure. This is during the Amarna period the time of King Tut's grandfather. And this is Bach, and I've never... Really, this is unique in, in Egyptian art, is that great beer belly sticking out there, and his wife is certainly pretty prosperous herself. He is chief of sculptures, sculptors, by the way, so just showing it as it is, and maybe that had something to do with it, got fed up with doing all those idealized bodies. Here is an idealized female body. Essentially, um, 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 this little uh, Old Kingdom figure was in the Old Kingdom show as well. But I, I, just, love the, I just love the straightforward body on this woman. And it, again, you can see the woman, they, the pubic triangle is emphasized very often in Egyptian art, and that was for fertility purposes and advertising just what a woman's main task is. But uh, rather full on the upper thighs in the front, they seem to admire that. And a very, very, again, tight, youthful, um, um, full breasts, of course, again, a fertility aspect to a female body. And um, this woman is actually wearing a dress. And what happens in Egyptian art is they seem to not want to hide the body that much. They want to make sure that a full, healthy body is with them for eternity. And there's no way anybody could operate in a dress this tight. Uh, unless you're just standing around for eternity, and I don't think they really meant it to be that way. It's just they didn't want to hide the body underneath. So let's cover up those bodies, and what are we doing with the cover-up? Of course, ancient Egyptians dressed in in linen. That was the main product. More and more archaeological um, evidence is showing m- more wool is in evidence than than. Uh, we thought heretofore, because a lot of bits of wool are turning up. And they had to have wool, although you layer in any in any cold climate, you just keep putting on layers. But linen's pretty cool, and Egypt is Egypt is pretty cool in the winter months. It gets down, you know, it's it, you're down to five above at night for a couple of months. So I'm sure they're wearing a lot of wool wool cloaks. But generally, it's linen. Um, it's beautiful in bloom. You don't see it in Egypt anymore. When you're in Egypt. Um, it's it's um, sugarcane fields, which are not really interesting, and it, it, the ancient Egyptian fields must have been just full of this wonderful linnet fl- flowering for, for a lot of the time. It was quite gorgeous. On the bottom you can see an ancient Egyptian depiction of pulling up the flax, and um, that's on the left, of course, and basically, indeed, flax is pulled. It's not harvested or cut, it's pulled. So you get the flax is pulled, it goes through a whole process of retting and drying and soaking and all that sort of thing. Anyway, they um, certainly knew what to do with it. The first linen is showing up from archaeological records. 5000 BC is the oldest piece we have, so they learned to uh, manipulate it. And it was imported, apparently, um, from the um, West Asia... And uh, but they certainly um, learned to be expert at what they were doing. This is one of their major exports as well. Uh, we have the early um, weaving of linen, and you've got a rather awkward picture on the top, but basically it's showing you this illustration on the bottom, which in the early days, this is a Middle Kingdom depiction. Uh, women seem to be completely in control of, of, of the linen production up until the New Kingdom. So you've got a couple of women with a ground loom here. It, um, the nature of Egyptian art uh, shows it in an upright fashion, but you've got this ground loom. And for those of you who understand weaving, I'm not going to go into the technicalities of it. Two women are, 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 are working the ground loom. One is doing the weaving, and the other is working the, um, the, 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 the shuttle, the heddle, the heddle, the, the shuttle, which lifts the, the warp threads up and down, so then then um, they're, they're... And the finest, finest linen is, is is as good, from ancient Egypt, as good as anything they can do today. Here's a little model. This is in um, um, New York. It's again a Middle Kingdom model, and what you've got here is a women's workshop, and they're... Um, um, I am supposed to have a pointer. Let that don't and let me see if I yeah I can use this. This showing up yes, okay. You've got women here are 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 getting the um, the the warp threads all lined up and then we'll be transferred to the ground loom over here where the women will work on it. And women are um, there are some titles known from certainly all periods. Sort of head of the house of weavers. Um, linen was just woven everywhere. They needed a lot of linen. That's what they wore. Um, they um, they did it at home. They did it in workshops. They had uh, royal workshops. They had workshops, ateliers, or workshops attached to temples. There is even a record of um, a town of artists that were building the the, um, the tombs of the pharaohs in the in the Valley of the Kings. One chap uh, booked off uh, a day's work so that he could do some weaving. It seemed to be quite okay to do such a thing. Those records also show that a guy uh, booked off to, to because he had a hangover. So lots of reasons to book off work. And one doesn't know whether they got paid for it or not. I suspect not. And they were quite open about why they were doing it. They didn't have to lie about it like we do. Anyway, the earliest the earliest dresses are rather odd, and this 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 is come this comes from um, a, a dig done in the early 1900s by the famous W.M.F. Petrie, who was the father of Egyptian archaeology. You can see how very very simple it is. Of course, this is in pretty bad shape. Um, um, the one on the left, I believe, is in the Petrie Museum. Still, you can see some pleating up at the top here. Very simple construction. We've just got you've just got a, a skirt sewn down down the uh, one side, and then you've got the the, the sleeve and the bodice. All all uh, there are three pieces to this whole outfit, and you can see very simply put together. Um, These are a bit of a mystery. They're very long and narrow. They're too long. for Nobody is this long and narrow, so not sure what's happening here. But these are the earliest dresses. They're linen, and uh, that's your your simple sort of Egyptian dress or tunic. You'll get some pleating. You'll get some crimping. Basically, not a lot of tailoring. Um, Oops, sorry. That's sensitive, isn't it? there back okay and your basic dress here the which you just saw is also the the sleeveless version is just again this um again this is a dress but it's it it i don't think they could have been that tight they had to be lo- a looser fitting garment to operate in just straight straps uh, straps over the shoulder and sewn to the skirt your basic male uh, outfit is a kilt it's just and here you see it um with some coloring on it here. And whether this is just painted on or whether it's some kind of dye, we're not sure. Linen is extremely hard to dye. This is super sensitive, isn't it? Sorry. I'll have to be more careful. Okay, get your hand off it. Uh, linen is, is extremely hard to dye, um, it, 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 as, as we all know, because we use it in table linen, and so it doesn't take a stain easily. The stains come out pretty easily, but it's also hard to dye. Egyptians didn't have that many materials for dyeing, probably woad for blue and ochres or, or, and madder for red. But they, as far as we know, they didn't have, or we don't know what they used for, a fixer. They must have had something because some color is showing up in depictions and in extant examples that we have. We are getting some blue striping, so there, there is some color, but generally I think they had a hard time coloring linen, so they stuck to the white. You, your basic man's killed here is just simply wrapped around a couple of times and then then pulled up and tucked, tucked up um, in the waist. Whether this is crimping or whether it's just the Egyptian way of, of depicting folding, is, again, another moot point. These bead dresses are kind of interesting. There's no way you could sit down in these. These beads are made of what we call Egyptian glazed composition, or faience is a common term. Uh, We've got a lot of these beads in the museum, and certainly you can just crack them so easily, so no one could sit down in this dress. So it had to be ceremonial worn over, maybe worn over the linen dress, or worn over nothing at all. The Egyptians didn't seem to care much about nudity. Um, They were a little more open than, than we are. Very hot climate. Maybe that has something to do with it. The ladies on the right are from a Middle Kingdom tomb. And again, is this, I doubt this is a weave. It's Middle Kingdom. They just didn't have the technology for it. Is it beads? Maybe it is, or is it just painted on? Because we do have examples of painted linen. One of King Tut's um, tunics is painted. Again, not that easy to wear, because I would think the paint would wash off. But again, these are tomb figures. They're idealized, um, and probably it's a depiction of beaded dresses for these ladies to uh, spend eternity in all their glory. Now coming in with the uh, on the upper right we have mail coming in with the new kingdom you've got you've got Thutmose the third going off to sort of the Syri- syro Palestinian area of the of the Eastern Mediterranean bringing back a lot of technology and one of these is the huge upright looms that's coming in from uh, the Levant. And now men are operating them because they're probably a lot harder to operate. And on the upper left, I've got some examples of of foreigners, of Palestinian type foreigners, coming in with these very colorful outfits. Um, this could be now they were wool wearers in that part of the world, and this could be, of course, wool is easier to dye, easier to weave. Or is this again? Is this wool? But. But the, the, on the bottom is a tapestry-woven piece of material, and a, the tapestry comes in, again, in the New Kingdom, coming into Egypt with all these... Well, I mean, some of these weavers are coming in as POWs, as a matter of fact. Thutmose III went forth and conquered and uh, brought back a lot of people who could actually do the technology. So... Um, this lovely royal clo- cloak is is, is is part of that technology, and it is a tapestry weave. Um, here are two more examples of tapestry we- weaves, very complex, and um, and um, again, in from the, the new technology is really taking off, and it's probably confined to the very wealthy and to the royals. Both of these pieces are royal, New Kingdom. Here's uh, here's King Tut's clo- here's King Tut's cloak, and now that i 'm looking at this i 'm not sure it is I think it 's Ka I think it 's another one at any rate key- that that 's my my friend and artist 's rendition of King Tut on the right. This is how these cloaks were worn it 's a very again a very simple piece of technology you 've got a keyhole um, head and neck piece sewn up the sides with some bands, decorative bands, sewn, sewn onto the cloak, either in tapestry or embroidery. Embroidery is coming in at this time as well, and they're probably importing, importing embroiderers. Um, so if you've seen the Tut collection in Cairo, you, you see those wonderful bands of decoration on the cloak, and that's just the Boy King all dressed up. And they would sash them like this, put them on and give them, put, put a nice colorful sash over them to give them a little flair. The simple people, this is what simple folk wore, and um, again, it's the standard, it's the standard um, tunic, we called, and and you can see the construction there, very, very simple, folded over, uh, neck with a couple of ties at the neck, and then a sash worn around it, and then of course, the quality of linen made all the difference, everybody kind of wore the same style, there wasn't a lot of difference in style, everybody was kind of stamped out with the same style, but the quality of linen, there were four qualities known by the, by the new kingdom. That was sort of ordinary, which is almost like canvas. Thin, very thin, and royal. The royal was reserved for, of course, the royals for the, and, and for the temple uh, priests and staff. So um, and, and the royal linen is that diaphanous material that uh, we have a few examples of the ramen. Yes, you can certainly see your hand right through it. And just to show you some of sort of the typical male costumes that show up in the artistic repertoire, and they're just, again, there's not a lot of tailoring here. They're very simple. They're showing up as your, your simple kilt, and you've got three layers here. You've got an overskirt, you've got a, a kilt on top, and, a, a, and an underskirt. Um, then this, there's all this kind of gathering. We don't really know. It's, it's all sort of folded and tied and, and not... not um, not tailored, and nobody really knows how these things are folded. All we, and, and all, we can do is surmise. Again, the gathering is it is it pleated? Is it gathered? Egyptians don't do folds very well. Everything is everything is. Um, very formal, very formal. again, goddess here in her probably her beaded dress, because she's a goddess, and we have a king here again with and you can see this diaphanous material. I'm scared, I'm scared to touch this. Sorry. This diaphanous material you can see his, um, you can see his undersc- underkilt right through this beautiful uh, royal linen overkilt. Ups and down. And here is probably this is one suggestion how, by the 18th dynasty, by the New Kingdom, King Tut's time, now you're getting women that are dressing really, really wrapping a lot of diapha- diaphanous linen around them. The suggestion at the left is from um, a textile book that I dug up. Our textile people helped me dig this up. I'm not sure this is right or wrong. We don't know exactly how it's done, but it certainly is giving the right effect, I think. Um, and, of course, the fringe is there. This person was trying to follow the sort of the fringing. Some of the paintings kind of show the fringes. You can tell a warp a warp and a weft fringe, by the way, from the paintings. But we've got Queen Nefertari on the right-hand side at the left being led by a goddess, and it, it's something like this. It's something like this is, is happening, and she's got a lovely, probably tapestry belt, Wrapped around her uh, to liven up the whole effect, and of course you get these white linen things and their their jewelry and of course their their accoutrement, uh, colorful, very colorful accoutrement looks so good against it as a background. We have sleeves, example of sleeves that would have been added to those tunics in cooler weather. We have um, at the ROM, as a matter of fact, it's that's underwear that. Very dirty piece of underwear on the right, and as you can see, it's just a loincloth. It's a diaper essentially, and everybody wore these. On the bottom left is a stack. It's is a stack of it's your basic tunic, pair of underwear, tunic, pair of underwear, tunic, underwear, tunic, underwear. They came in pairs in many of the tombs. King Tut had a hundred um, sets of tunic underwear sets. So probably um, um, one gets the idea that they're pretty clean people, as a matter of fact, um, because buried with a lot of clean sets of clothes, put on, well, whenever they need it, depending on, of course, your... your your um, your financial situation. Um, how the rich, of course, would put on clean clothes anytime they wanted because they had lots of they had lots of domestic help. Um, terry cloth was one of the things that they did invent. Um, it could be looped, or those loops could be cut, as this one is. There's a close up on the bottom right. On the top, it's a little tunic in the Cairo Museum. Which is no longer on display, by the way, so they're probably fixing it up. But anyway, this is a child's tunic, and you can see that it would—it's a terry cloth tunic. Again, would provide uh, some warmth in the cooler months. And headgear—that's King Tut's um, um, kerchief on the left—and that's sort of what it looked like on the head. And it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's worn. You—you c- you see these things worn by people in the fields when they're winnowing the grain. You can just imagine what it would do to your hair. Um, especially since hair was oiled, so you, they, you know, certainly for workers, uh, headscarves were an absolute necessity. It's kind of interesting that King Tut had one. It suggests that maybe he had to perhaps do a little bit of manual labor in the afterlife, as everybody was expected to do, and therefore it was placed there just in case, just in case he actually couldn't find anyone to do it for him. Um, laundry, lots of lots of lots of laundry was done. We've got laundry lists. We've got laundry marks um, on on garments that are extant. Sometimes they're embroidered, which is, which suggests that they went to the laundry a lot. Um, you've got here on the up. You can see they've got a, a, a post. They're standing in a vat of water. The guys on the left, they're wringing it out with that wringing post. They're shaking it out in the middle there. They're beating it. One guy's beating it. So done very much like like. Um, times past or even some third world countries today they're beating it on rocks they're using natron as a soap the only th- the only soap they had was a, a natron which is um which is salt. It's a sodium carbonate, I think. At any rate, there was lots of it. There was lots of it in Egypt, and it was a soda. So they're washing with soda. Harsh, of course. They're washing their own bodies with natron, and that's why, of course, they, they oiled their bodies. It would be very, very drying to wash with natron. But it's very effective. It's washing with salt. So you've got the guys uh, doing the laundry here. We have laundry lists, um, and we have also... They're, they're, they're describing the condition. We have sort of... Such and such a number of tunics, threadbare or very good, that sort of thing. So they're describing it, um, and then they're gathering it and they're they're washing it, folding it, and bringing it back. So there are there were professional laundry, uh, laundries, just as there are today. And then shoes, of course, or sandals. No shoes. That's why their feet are so good. There's no bunions in an ancient Egypt. Um, beautiful feet on the statues. Uh, you have King Tut's pair on the right, beautiful, with depictions of, actually there are depictions of enemies on the soles of those shoes. So as he walks around, he's trampling his enemies. And a much simpler pair worn by U and B on the left there, a pair of, just a pair of sandals woven out of um, papyrus or some, anything. They would weave them out of anything, that any kind of grass-like substance could be woven into sandals. And very often in the the depictions, people don't, I mean, sandals are worn in paintings and sculpture, but not always in the very rich, the very rich, the very high um, echelons very often are shown with bare feet. So um, it, it, I don't think, I think they wore bare feet as, as, as just as much as they wore sandals, depending upon where they were walking, I'm sure. Now, to top off those wonderful white linens, uh, flowing diaphanous garments, you've got these rather crazy wigs. This is one, and there's there's one with a wig box. And you've got this sort of... There's, there's quite a difference between the reality of wigs that we have and kind of the artistic depictions, and it's hard to sort of reconcile that and explain it, because this one on the left, although it's in pretty rough shape, after all, it's a New Kingdom wig, and this is, this, this, this is called this duplex wig, and I'll show you an example of a painting afterwards, but you can see how it's constructed. It's sort of got a net, a linen net base, and then the it's human hair, and very small strands were waxed together and twisted around around the, the the netting, and they were held in place by a resin. So that held them in place. Now, I thought I'd just compare. There, there Here's an example on the right of a, 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 some sort of form of that duplex wig that this dude is wearing, and I thought, I'm sure these guys are, you know had very much the same sort of flair as the Sun King on the left here. And the wig is probably about the same size. And they were probably waxed and held in place and carefully looked after. And pretty sure this is a wig. But sometimes it's very difficult to know what's a wig and what isn't in ancient Egypt. If the haircut's very short in, in, the, in, the, in the depiction, well, probably it's hair. This is, this is a Middle Kingdom princess. Having her hair done, having a glass of wine while she's having her hair done, as a matter of fact. But we do have we do have examples of hairdressers, male and female hairdressers, and this is an example of perfect on the bottom left. There, they're doing just what they do today, taking a hank of hair and twisting it, and keeping it in place till till. And she's doing probably doing a cornrow here. They had cornrows, but they also had some some um, corkscrew curls as well. But are they, are they doing a wig with the wig on the princess i mean why so maybe the princess is maybe this is real hair we can never tell because they wore a lot of wigs we know that i guess because and the reasons i think are obvious um they could keep their hair short and and while they're not out at a party or being seen in public, short hair would be cooler in the hot summer and I th- perhaps a little more control over lice. Cer- certainly there are examples of, of head lice in ancient Egypt. And there's just a nice example of a of, of, of a late um, 18th dynasty. 18th dynasty is the one that we're concerned with in the King Tut, well not, in, in King, King Tut is late 18th dynasty so I you know, sort of dwelling on that. But here we have Maya and his wife, a lovely statue in Leiden, actually, and both with very elaborate uh, hairstyles. And these tendrils, you can see these... Dare I touch this? These tendrils coming down from... um, from No, no. From Meritair. uh, On the sides. Yes, you can see them sort of on the sides there. And (laughs) I can't do it. And um, so she's got this wig on, and she's got, she's got uh, these little cor- corkscrew tendrils coming down, and these are probably little bits of her own hair sort of peeking out over the wig. And he's, and he's got on this, du- this so-called duplex wig. It's two different, it's, it's, it's these uh, very carefully constructed wig with, with um, different kinds of curls. And there's just some of the artistic examples. We've got... Um, the, the, here's an example um, in... Um, I believe this is in Cairo. And the um, the curls are... are There's beeswax in those just to keep them in place. And then you've got an artistic description of of what are either cornrows or corkscrew curls. Again, just an example on the bottom left is the um, Old Kingdom uh, Rahotep. And I think that probably... That's his hair. It's just an ordinary short haircut. And notice the mustache. In the Old Kingdom, very often the the, the paint is worn off the statue so you don't see a mustache, but this very dapper little mustache was very, very popular in Old Kingdom Egypt, and it it goes out of style. King Tut never would have worn a mustache. And then you also have a beard on the um, upper left. You've got a little goatee beard on this guy. Again, this is a New Kingdom, very popular in the New Kingdom. And then, of course, we have Ibi Ref, uh, in his role as a priest, uh, middle kingdom, and he's got a shaved head. And when men were doing their duty in, in, in the temple, and most upper-class people did do some duty in the temple, the head was shaved. There, were, there was a heavy emphasis on cleanliness in, in the temple. And just, some again, some hairstyles with women. Um, you've got um, the side lock on the child in the center. This is a sign of youth. Um, but boys and girls, uh, head shaved, not all depictions ha- have the head shaved sometimes, but the head, is, the hair is just gathered, and it, it's gathered in uh, some kind of braid, a multi- one braid or multiple braids um, on the side, and then you've got uh, the um, harpist on the right has, is wearing what we have call an enveloping wig, and then you've got these sort of cornrows um, with the other girls. Quite a lively bunch, that bunch. Uh, this is the; these are the only two depictions we have of makeup. Although everybody knows about Egyptian eyes, the one on the upper left is a woman either washing her face, perhaps applying natron to it. She's holding a mirror in her left arm. Um, I. There's, there's no real evidence of any sort of face powder, makeup, that sort of thing. I think she's probably just wiping her face with her handkerchief. Everybody, every upper class person always carried a handkerchief to wipe the brow. The um, prostitute, actually, on the, the lower, on the lower right is um, either applying lipstick of some sort or eye makeup. She's holding what we call a coal stick. It's with a, that it 's just a stick with a bulbous end we know that the, that was used to make up the eyes, but uh, was she doing her lips because it seems the artist is looking at the lips. If there was lipstick, not a lot of evidence I think there's some uh, red ochres would have been used for that mixed with oil. Here are some of the um, let me check my time i 'm okay um, here are some of the implements of course, for and there are those coal sticks on the bottom left in a little coal container. coal was galena it 's a lead. A lead compound, and of course, the question is did it help the eyes, or did it hinder the eyes? I think a lot of lead applied to the body is not a good idea, apparently, but then there is some evidence that lead applied uh, to the around the eyelids would have had some some effect perhaps on on, on germs around the eyes, that it would have killed bacteria so i guess i I guess it's both good and bad. Just a couple of nice little glass eye uh, coal containers. It was ground, it's quite soft, it's easily ground. There's some evidence that they went for some that they strained it to make it um shinier, which would I guess be more attractive and um probably added a little water, maybe even just a little spit as they were making up their eyes and the upper um the upper. Um, photo shows us just some of the implements. Um, Cosmetic dishes, a mirror there you can see, a razor uh, just on the bottom of the mirror, and little cold pots where they would just keep their their powdered up galena for, for touching up their eyes. And there are those beautiful eyes. Um, we've got the um, Old Kingdom Princess on the right. You can see she doesn't really have that extended cosmetic line, but she has an extended inner line f- from, the, from the inner canthus. It seemed very popular in the Old Kingdom to do that. Quite effective, I think. I'd like to see some of the young girls... Doing that today, I think it would be fun. But then we've got just a lowly um, servant um, during the harvest here, um, and she's got that extended eyeline. So it seems, although there is a certain transition from royal into ordinary people, it seems that really your it was your choice whether you wanted to do that eyeline or not that extended outer eyeline. As for eyeshadow, the coal um, we have to. Um, there's um, These are both Old Kingdom, and you can't see the color, but believe me, the scribe on the left um, has got green eyeliner on, and the uh, princess, um, the very early princess on the right, has got green eyeshadow under her eyes, and perhaps over as well. Um, so that must that might have been quite effective. As a matter of fact, I did see somebody wearing their eyes this way, and it looked okay, it looked fine. Is the green on the left merely because um, we don't have any green eyeshadow extent. Anything we find in those coal containers is black. Um, but green malachite is about this color. Ground malachite is about this color. Um, so they could well have been using that. But those are copper inlays for those 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 Old Kingdom eyes, really, they p- did a copper sort of cell p- to put into the limestone statue. Then they inlaid limestone, obsidian, um, to make a very, very effective um, lifelike eye. So, I mean, the, I, I, I guess we have to say that at least in the Old Kingdom they were doing green around the eyes, but I don't have any other examples from any other period? Again, just some of the lovely containers they made to keep their cosmetics in. They have this wonderful glass fish bottle, um, with this beautiful glasswork they're doing. They're 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 you know they're. Winding the glass around the core, and then they're trailing a stick to give it that lovely scalloped effect. Beautiful gold piece here with a hinge on it that closed beautifully. Um, Again, this is very, very old. It's the very beginning of Egyptian technology, and it's a perfect, perfect piece of, of goldsmithing. Uh, cosmetic spoons were very popular in the, in the New Kingdom and later. Um, we've got the one on the left, and you can see that it's hinged. It's closed now, but you can see the pins at the top, and that just go, opens so that you can grind your, your cosmetics in there, whether it's lipstick or eye paint. And then the one on the right, we've got a poor POW sort of carrying the disc. Um, but anyway, that is Happy New Year is is the inscription on that so so we know that these things were given as gifts and i think anything this decorative of course would be given as gifts just as as they are today ah and we've got these um perfume and what we have here is on the top we have somebody straining perfume, and there's a little hint about what the scent is because we've got water lilies on the top, so they're being used for perfume. Now, perfume was it was not distilled as it is today. It was simply, <clears throat> excuse me, sweet-scented wood. Um, I'm going to have to, <clears throat> excuse me, sweet-scented wood, blossoms, anything that had a lovely smell. Jasmine, probably. Um, and it was soaked. It would just simply kept soaking it in oil, fat or oil, soaking it, soaking it, straining it, re-soaking it, till finally the oil picked up the scent. And there we have, um, on the bottom, um, very late rendition here. I think this is Greco-Roman. Um, we have the lady on the left bringing lilies. Those are just ordinarily lilies. And the the um, girls are again. It's in a sack, and they're squeezing out that lily scent into a jar to be um, to be soaked in the oil. And uh, there is King Tut uh, on his golden throne with his wife uh, applying um, this unguent, as as is called. And remember, you're you're washing with natron. It's salt. It's horribly drying. So they would have applied this wonderful fat. Uh, scented fat to their all over their bodies and probably scraped it off, much as the Greeks did. Um, although I don't know anything that's been identified definitely as a scraper, um, but I think some of those razors are probably scrapers. And then, of course, rubbed into the skin to keep it soft uh, and supple and sweet-smelling. And the um, on the lower right again we have. Uh girls at a party, servant girls are very often naked, decorated up with their necklaces and little girdles there. Um, and these are the ladies at the party and they are renewing what is called the cosmetic cone. This is um lots of inks built on this one. There are two there are two schools of thought. The earlier one is what I learned years ago, was there? it's some kind of fat cone that sits on the top of the head and is perfumed. And as you have fun in the evening heat, although it's probably more the afternoon heat that their parties took place, it would melt it down all over your hair and all over your clothes. And that's why the clothes are yellow. But I just, they are very clean people. I can't imagine them. And wigs are expensive, uh, why are they going to guck it all up like that? The latest on this, and i 'm inclined to agree with this is this is just a depiction of perfume. I mean the Egyptians were very concrete in their depictions. They wanted these ladies wanted us to know that these ladies are wearing perfume you can't and rather than doing fumes, which we would do, I guess wouldn't we they just they just did a depiction of of this this somehow it meant these These women were wearing perfume and that it was being renewed. So, um, and the woman on the left is having her wine renewed, and one of them is saying, No, no more. So, um, again, a typical party scene. And again, the cones are are a moot, the the cosmetic cones are a moot point. Um, Mirrors, of course, everyone um, wanted a mirror to. To put on that wonderful eye paint. And the one on the left is a middle kingdom from the tomb of of, of royal, of princesses. And that is silver. Not in terrific shape, as you can see. Silver doesn't last as well as gold. The gold handle certainly lasted well. Silver, very expensive. It wasn't indigenous to to Egypt, so it had to be imported. And so extremely expensive, extremely rare in Egypt. They never really got into it for their... For the, much for their jewelry, but certainly a good princess would have a a, a silver mirror there 's a more ordinary one uh, on the right that 's in our collection at the rom That's a wooden handle and it 's a piece of bronze our, and uh, you can see that it is um, as um, corroded but uh, and and but that can be shined up quite quite nicely. We could shine that up if we wanted to and we have one on display uh, we have we have a um a replica on display, just just at an angle that the kids can kind of look into, and th- you can you can do a lot with a bronze mirror. You can get your eye paint on. Um, and what was what? Were, what are all these things kept in? Of course, they're kept in boxes. Egyptians, no closet, no, no no dressers. Everything was kept in a box in ancient Egypt. And we got Old Kingdom on the uh, lower left, and that is um, f- favorites of ancient Egypt: ivory, lapis lazuli turquoise, carnelian, all inlaid there beautifully, the same with on the right, same materials with ebony, uh, Middle Kingdom Princess, and a little tiny ordinary person one at the ROM, just a, some, some wood, but very very nicely done. Ah, now getting to jewelry, so after you've got your wig and your white linen on, you're ready to really, really get into it, and um These are the three, or the four favorite things for ancient Egyptian jewelry. Gold, of course, you can all see that. Carnelian on the upper left, Cornelian, um, Carnelian, Cornelian in Britain, Um, uh, which is a lovely red stone. And then we've got turquoise on the upper right, and this lapis lazuli, which is a beautiful cobalt blue stone. And again, this had to be imported in the nearest place as far as we know, is Afghanistan. So it was coming in from earliest times all the way from Afghanistan. Gold indigenous to southern Egypt and Nubia. Um, great new gold mines just found in Sudan, by the way, and in about the same place as the Egypt, ancient Egyptians were uh, mining it. So there's a, there's a new gold rush on, folks, in, in, in Sudan. We thought it was mined out. Um, the uh, carnelian is... Very pretty common in the uh, western and eastern deserts of Egypt, and the turquoise is mined in Sinai. Extremely back-breaking work in 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 the Sinai, and. and uh, prisoners of war and criminals were often sent to the turquoise mines to get those. And very early on, um, the Egyptians learned to um, fake these things. They very by producing something we call faience or or glaze composition. And really, it's just ground quartz and and pigments are added. And we get they were able to, you know, um, they were able to replicate. Those wonder well, many, many, many different colors, but certainly they could replicate uh, the the turquoise, the 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 lapis lazuli, and the cornelian. So, and they didn't see, and they would mix them. You know, they didn't seem to mind about. They didn't have the same ideas about real and fake as we do. They sort of mixed them together as long as the color was right. I think they were perfectly fine with the idea. And again, getting into jewelry, some of the technology here. We've got um, um. Tight control on the jewelry ateliers because you're dealing with gold, which is very precious, and your semi-precious stones. So, on the upper right, we have we have a jewelry workshop there. You can see some of the items. Those lovely broad collars that, and the little guy on in, in the upper middle there. There, oh, I can't do it. Um, sorry, I just it's just too sensitive for me. Um, and the. Uh, um, the upper left picture in the upper middle is the guy weighing gold, very carefully weighing the gold, some of the products below they 're drilling beads on the um, upper right you 've got a bow drill and this th- this is not a bead he 's drilling i 'm cheating it 's the only photo I could find he 's just drilling holes in a chair, as you can see, but they did the same thing with beads, a very fine chisel and a, and the you got the bow. You wrap the string around, and you're going back and forth, um, drilling the beads. And here are some of the beautiful examples on the bottom. You've got um, you've got your um, amethyst. These are Middle Kingdom beads. Amethyst was very popular in the Middle Kingdom. Went out of style. King Tut doesn't have any. And you got your carnelian. These are gold capped beads. The the one the carnelian ones there. So so. Absolutely beautiful work that they were doing, and here, here, this is this is the kind of thing they were working with to work their gold. P- pretty primitive, but they did pretty beautiful things. Have you seen? They're just doing a blowpipe, and then again, when when the the New Kingdom people went abroad and got that technology, that's when. The um, bellows, the foot—they brought the foot bellows back with them, which raised the temperature, so they could do a lot more. And now they could get into glass. The faience is lovely, but it doesn't—it doesn't—it's almost glass, but it isn't glass because the um, the blowpipe isn't hot enough. But now they can get into glass manufacturing here, which again is a is a borrowed technology from the Eastern Mediterranean. But they brought the foot bellows back and did marvelous things. And here's a here's a chap working away. You can see with his thread, and he's he's threading beads, and. Um and he's got this, this what we call a broad-collar necklace. And here we are. This one is in the museum at the, the ROM, And it's just a very, very long and hard job stringing these things. But it is really sort of an icon of ancient Egyptian jewelry. If you were anybody in ancient Egypt, you certainly had to have a broad collar. Now, we don't have the counterpoise, but you can see in the, the depiction of the... the, the, the the necklace in the upper left, that the counterpoise, what happens, these things are heavy and they're going to fall forward. So you put them around your neck and then you just put a little weight, a decorative weight, to uh, down the back, which looks pretty good as well, looks lovely, and that keeps, that keeps everything in order and um is 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 this is this millinery or is it jewelry it 's sort of jewelry you 've got these lovely gold gold beads again this is a middle kingdom um, upper uh, the left is middle kingdom um, gold beads over your hair with this lovely gold diadem with inlaid uh, cloisonne bits of um, turquoise, carnelian, and lapis lazuli. And then you have this whole headdress, on um, New Kingdom headdress, on the right-hand side, and this is all pretty well faience and glass. So Middle Kingdom tended to use the sort of real thing, and by the time the New Kingdom comes in, and they've got all this technology to do glass and to, to really work with faience, they, they are, they're, they're working with that. And Let's look at diadems. The one on the lower left is your typical sort of diadem that many, many people wore over their lovely wigs. And a beautiful beadwork. We don't have a lot of beadwork extant from ancient Egypt. King Tut has some gorgeous beadwork. Unbelievable. Fine, fine. Anyway, beautiful beadwork with these little petals hanging from it. So they wore that around their head. The two others are Middle Kingdom examples of princesses. So Essentially, they're tiaras, really. They are, they're, they're, they're unique, and they're beautiful. And again, it's the gold. It's the carnelian, lapis lazuli, and turquoise. Um, now, we get into what we call pectorals. And um, that is these very, and it's time to talk about cloisonne, isn't it? Um, so Egypt went, from, from earliest days, they mastered the art of cloisonne, which is essentially, it's, 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 there are cells of gold. So you take a back plate of gold, you take thin, thin, thin strips of, of gold, um, tiny gold sheeting, and you solder that on, and you make your little patterns. You just painstakingly make all these little patterns that you're going to inlay. Then you're going to inlay these tiny little bits of jewels. It just would take forever. And they're soldered on. So you've got your plate. You've got your thin strip of gold. You've got it upright to make a cell to put your inlay in. And you've got a soldering there. And the soldering is is so good that there's there's no... There's no, um, there's no evidence of how it was soldered. There's, it, it's like a weld. It is so good. It's like welding. And um, we're not sure exactly how they did it, but um, the Metropolitan Museum did some research a number of years back, and they think it was called, it's something called colloidal hard soldering. I'm not going to get into the whole. It's, it's got something to do with pasting it on with ground malachite, and it's the chemical composition of malachite. And you, pay, you use malachite in your paste, paste it on, and when it reaches a certain temperature, and I forget what that temperature is, and there's two temperatures involved. And first, the malachite unites with the gold, and then, then then, the rest of the chemicals come off in a steam, and that's called colloidal hard steam. Soldering, and I can give you the reference if you want to read, but it, it, it gives you a join just like a weld with just no indication of any kind of soldering whatsoever, which apparently you can find in soldering. If you look, you can find, aha, the flux, I think, is is what's evident. At any rate, then all these little cells, then they have to cut, cut all these little gold pieces of, of, of semi-precious stone or glass or faience, cut them out, polish them, and paste them in. So hours and hours of work, and they just did... Hundreds and hundreds of these things are available for for, for view and King Tut had you know, hit a couple of dozen of these things, and they 're just absolutely wonderful. And the, I, I just wanted to um, note the one on the upper right, again, is a, is, a, is a pectoral, but again, a very simple one, and this is some kind of, this is a middle kingdom with Senwazeret's name on it, one of the pharaohs, and it's some kind of medal, apparently, that was, was given um, in, in per, perhaps for, for bravery, we're not sure, some kind of favor by the king. I'm wearing one, I'm wearing a British. The British Museum did a repro a couple of years back, a very nice repro. And um, yeah very uh, very simple very elegant very different than these very very busy pectorals that we see here's some king of king tut's material and as you can see the the craftsmanship is 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 perfect um t- time consuming whenever i look at this i think I- God, how did they do it? How did they do it? They, you know, they're casting the gold, they're beating the gold, they're 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 cutting the gold. They're they're making these cells into which they're pasting these very carefully cut out bits of glass, etc. Absolutely gorgeous material. Whether these are made just for his burial or whether he wore them in life, I'm not sure we know for sure, but it is generally thought that you that he must have worn this for, for of course, coronation, high state functions, et cetera, et cetera. Here, here's another one. And, uh, as you can see, you've got your cloisonne beautifully done. The, 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 the vulture's head is cast gold, and then it's worked on the other side. And gold was worked. Gold really wasn't engraved. I noticed one of the labels today said engraved for something, but that's, I don't think so. It was, it was chased or it was repoussé, and that means no, no gold is taken away. It's simply hammered on one side or the other. Uh, you're either working from the front or working from the back, and you're just you're sim- on a soft sort of leather surface, and you're simply indenting the gold. And then just some of the um, some of the kind of again the broad collar, and she's wearing some kind of pectoral or some kind of addition to the broad collar under that. That's Old Kingdom. That's from very ancient times. And I had to show Intishedu, which is Zahi Awaz's, uh discovery of this chap's, and we've got him. We've got a statue of him in the show. Again, everybody wore these things to one ex- to to, a, to to some extent. And how big, small, or in between? Um, th- this is a girdle, and this is exclusive to women. So you don't see men wearing those girdles you saw those naked girls with their little girdles on worn low they're just little sort of low belts and um we the one on the left is in the ram and we've got we've got these little sort of wallet beads which just seem to show up in girdles. They're kind of a variation on a cowrie shell which in in most cultures is a fertility symbol and worn generally just by women. And then you've got the one on the right from those Middle Kingdom princesses cash, a tremendous cash by the way, that was discovered early in the 1900s. You've got sort of leopard's heads again and these have little pellets in the gold, double leopard's heads and so it jingled when she walked. And then you 've got this elaborate sort of um, belt with a tail for one of those princesses, and only royalties wore the tail. You have king Tut's probably a belt buckle we 're not so sure some kind of buckle in this red gold, and a number of there are a number of items in King Tut 's repertoire that have this blush of red on the gold, and we 're not sure, but some perhaps the introduction of iron fool 's gold, iron pyrite. Um, in the final stages, not sure. And then a typical man's belt there, just an ordinary belt, but it's it's got a um, a base of gold upon which is placed a beaded a beaded um, back, um, addition. And then of course again, you've got this cloisonné inlaid buckle. Earrings, earrings uh, were very popular, and they sort of come in all styles. You can see the one on the left, of course, how it worked. Really had to squash your earlobe for that one and then the uh, same style on your right. These are called penannular. We've got studs on the top and those just went directly into the ear. Then you've got plugs on the bottom and these are quite large. Those plugs are like this. So they were definitely kept stretching the holes and stretching the holes and uh, to get a bigger and bigger plug in. And then you've got these um, the um, tube and boss are these types and they simply come apart. You stick you stick you stick them in your ear and then then put them put them put them together and so these are worn um, these these are worn um, these would have been seen from the side these are just simply plugs with a tube and style King Tut has a hole there for a fairly large hole for his earrings and this little this little piece on the other side I don't have a picture it's cracked on the other side. You never get that picture. There is still a bit of an earring in there, by the way. If you're you're going to the Cairo Museum, make sure you look at that other side. And these are in the show. Um, Huge, huge. One of these earrings is in the show, and the necklace as well. This is huge, like this. Again, it's the tube emboss. Again, very, and quite a large, probably a centimeter, that tube. So they, they were getting fairly large holes in their ears. Cats depicted with earrings. Um, uh, cats were pets, of course, and they did have earrings um, and, and um, a dog collar. That's a dog collar on the bottom right. So it's a decorated dog collar, and uh, so they, they, were, they used their dogs mainly for hunting and the cats mainly for petting in the house. Rings, of course, very popular. You get these these uh, an array of rings, just these straight signet rings made out of faience, and of course the good old scarab signet ring with the scarab twirls, and you can use it. So you're wearing your scarab. Generally, they're worn. Apparently, scarabs are generally worn on the our, our, our wedding finger, the fourth finger, left hand, and that it could be used as a seal. So you you just twirl the scarab to. To, to seal and there you get gold um, shanks and um, bezels you get the um, these very elaborate things which are King Tuts you get extremely elaborate rings um, you get a, a, a little sculpture on the top of the uh, on the, the one at the top and I think this one's in the show the one uh, Left hand side, middle, bottom. I think that one's in the show, but I can't identify it enough. And the one on the right is um, is um, as you can see, those little modeled horses. that's an actual ring. So they invented the True Signet ring, which is um, on the upper left hand side there, um, and certainly that was used as, as a as a seal as well. Um, there, these little fiance rings were pumped out by the hundreds and were given away as party favourites, um, par- party favors, so you would come in and you would get your little fiancé ring to wear for the evening. And it looks like you wore them on almost every finger. It's rare to see depictions of finger rings in paintings or sculpture or anywhere, but we have this lovely mummy with her nice big plug earrings, and uh, she's got lots of rings on there, too, so I guess... woo but uh, she's going. She's she's outfitted for all of eternity. So this is, of course, this is the best. And bracelets. Um, we have a lovely set of bracelets from the King Khufu, the, pyram- the builder of the Great Pyramid. His mother had a Paris, This this material is in the um, the Cairo Museum now, and you can see the bracelets. You can see them how they were found. It was a bit of a mess that dig, but they've been cleaned up nicely. They are silver, okay? One of the earliest rendition of, of examples of silver. So Pharaoh's mother, extremely precious, and she's got this lovely little inlay, not cloisonne, it's just pressed into the silver. lazuli, carnelian, and turquoise. And those were graduated, by the way. So she wore them right up her arm. You, they, they, they're, they're, they, they go from very narrow to quite wide, and there's enough to go. So both arms full of those lovely silver shiny bracelets. Fabulous. Also very simple stuff. Just your plain beaded wear and a lovely elegant little thing on the bottom. And then you're getting into some... By New Kingdom times, you're getting into these wonderful um, cuff bracelets that are held together by a retractable retractable pin, the upper one. You can see they just fit together. And then a pin... Uh, goes down to hold it in place, and it keeps its shape. The gold is soldered together to make the spacer bars, and those are solid, and then it's just beadwork in between, but the whole thing stays together. King Tut's on the bottom there. You can see he's got this beautiful sacred eye, and that is a very powerful sign of healing and and renewal and then of course you've got also these these um these cuffs that are they sort of pretend to be beaded but they're not those are inlays um on, those are inlays on the cuffs looking like beaded but they're solid gold as you can see and again held together by the retractable pin and hinged another ramesses um uh, the second bracelet on on the left again hinged and the um and, and another hinged bracelet on the right early early 18th dynasty one of the first queens for that one, these are anklets, by the way, and um, they really weren't they weren't worn much after the middle Kingdom. Those are middle kingdom on the bottom, and those little falcons' claws seem to be extremely popular with with anklets of those girls and uh, we have a late twenty um, first dynasty anklet on the top, which is, is is rare for the late period, but it was on the mummy that tanis that twenty first twenty second dynasty um, discovery at Tanis during the second world war when the war was all the news nobody knows about the discovery It was almost not not as good as king Tubb but it was pretty pretty spectacular as a matter of fact, the gold mask is in, in the in in the uh, exhibition is from tanis that was it, it was it was uh, superseded by news of, of it was just came. It was discovered just as the Second World War was breaking out. So the whole thing just kind of died on the vine. It would have been. It would have been probably as exciting as King Tut. And we're just taking a look at a very special sort of award of honor here. This is a uh, notice that uh, Nefer here. This is a lovely little tomb close to where I work, actually. And he has got on what we call the award of uh, the gold of honor. He's got a great big earring on, and this lovely sort of gold disc, gold disc beads um, necklace. Or uh, actually, it's not a broad collar; it's several gold bead necklaces. Though his armlets are. Our, our awa armlets, and, and he's got these these bracelets um, are part of it. And this seems to be some kind of honor that the king gives uh, to favorite for some for, well, whatever, favorites or work well done, what have you. And there's just a little rendition we have at the ram a vignette we have of a lady, and that's the little bronze mirror that you can sort of, well, you can, you'll can you bend down. The kids don't have to bend down. So you can sort of see how much they were able to see, and then we've just sort of outfitted her as, as a, a highborn 18th dynasty lady, very big hair, uh, getting ready for the ball. And here's where she would have gone with that. And again, we just have a nice little party scene here. I showed you that bottom one before with the unguid being renewed and the wine. And then we've got the lads on the top. And we think probably um, single people were separated at these parties, the girls on one side, the boys on the other. And, because, and the married people, when you see b- people together, they're the married couples. They're sitting together. So it must have been quite fun. It must have been a time for, for the girls and boys to eye each other up. And here, here are the musicians again. I've showed you this again. Again, um, what we have here is... Um, Again, there's, there's nudity. There's these diaphanous dresses, and then there's sort of fully dressed musicians. There doesn't seem to be any, any, um, and that's a child, a naked child, sort of just dancing around. She's not playing any particular instrument, but we have we have a couple of harps there, and, and a sort of a guitar, lute, rababa, sort of, sort of, and a double pipe. The Egyptians kind of apparently the double pipe is turns into a bagpipe at some point, so. Um, one is a drone, and I'll end with again just this lovely um, uh, pe- people at a party. These these are tomb scenes. Of course, they're at their own party for all eternity. They are dressed to the nines because that's the way they're going to spend eternity. You can see now the woman and her mother-in-law are with the husband, son, and they are getting sustenance from the the lady of the sycamore tree, and that is just their fit. That's a fig tree here, and it's just sustenance for eternity. And then the couple on the bottom right, uh, if you'll notice the pet cat under the lady's chair. If you look closely, yes, I think you can. You can see the earring on the cat. Just get a little white earring on the cat. So yes, they really did have put earrings on. I'm tempted, I'm tempted, but I won't do it. <laughs> People will get mad at me if I do it. Anyway, there they are, with their bouquets, their flowers, and I think that's it. Yes, okay, and I'm, I'm just, l- not too much over time. So.
0: Wow. Um, thank so, you, for questions? Yeah, uh, I think um, we have uh, a few minutes for questions. I do ask you to use the mic if you can. If you raise your arm, I will, I will deliver it to you with, Mock speed. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I was at the show a few weekends ago, and I noticed the magnificent, um, the women's sort of crowns, as well as the earrings that looked like poppy pods. Poppy. Almost the shape of a thistle or a poppy pod. And one one example was presented here, and it crossed my mind. I wondered if that was what I was looking at. And some of the flower motifs also had. Notably, the shape of what you would think of when you think of a poppy flower.
1: Those are generally referred to as cornflowers. Egyptologists have been reluctant to pursue the whole poppy, heroin, drug (laughs) aspect of ancient Egypt. (laughs) I think there's a lot more there than we've talked about. Um... Because certainly they had poppies and and I think generally, when I talk to my friends that are dealing with West Asian material, even Islamic material, they say, "Of course Egypt was stoned on this stuff, you know, but we never seem to for one thing in the in the Egyptian medical um, writings it 's very hard to translate what what 's happening and what they 're doing, but certainly there are. There are indications, not only did they like to get drunk, but there are indications that they floated... Um, apparently, if you, float, if you float water lilies on wine, I think that really doubles the effected, effect. I've never tried it, but apparently there's a narco- narcotic effect. I think they were playing around with it. I think because we don't have any um, depictions of them doing it, we just assume they didn't. But um, I think I, th- I think more... Maybe they are poppy pods. Maybe they are. Those are always, those, that, that little sort of bulb, and the, those are always kind of called cornflowers. I'm not, not sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing. If somebody would like to produce a paper, I'd be more than willing to read it. Yeah. Yes.
2: Oh. All right. um, you talked about there being four different grades of linen, and the, the sheer being the most... Um, I guess valuable, or mm-hmm. what the um, mm. did did the, um, the the hierarchy, the queens and kings, um, did they have servants that wove their own, that they would only be the ones that would use that, or was it all imported, or just all in stores, and they it was just more expensive? So,
1: no, the royal certainly the palace would have its own um, linen factory. Weevils, yeah. Absolutely, the temples had their mm-hmm. own linen factory, and that would have been the best The best weavers would have worked there. they would have you know people could rise to the top if you 're talented, of course, you could rise to the top. so your best weavers would be working in there and they would be producing that and as I said also you 've got your ordinary people just doing it at home that 's going to be your rougher stuff because that 's what they're they 're wearing and don 't forget they're all, they also made. Bags out of linen. They did do sort of a canvas because they needed bags, and they really they didn't. There was no cotton. There was only linen and wool, and wool wool. uh, There's not much evidence for wool, but there's more evidence coming in. Barry Kemp is discovering more at Amarna, as a matter of fact. So, but still, you're making rough bags. You're you're doing with uh, with linen canvas. So those in in homes, people in their homes would be weaving what they needed. They would be lucky to be able to buy some very fine linen. Probably they never would.
2: Uh, we went to a course in um, the States that was talking about the different linens and the different colorations of linens, and they were saying that they were pretty sure that it was a um, kind of milkmaids that um, were getting the white linens because it, it, there was some sort of staining process that maybe happened by accident, and they realized, oh, they can make the linens whiter, um, by the use of milk, milk, yeah, and well, they certainly is had any, access to, to milk. Yeah.
1: I asked our textile people this question quite a few years back, and I said, "How did they get it so white?" Um, and they just said, "Well, you know, it bleaches. Pretty, I mean, boy, they got the all that sun. sun. Yeah. It bleaches. It bleaches very easily. Apparently, you 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 make it, you wash it, you you string it on. Well, bushes probably. There's no depiction of a clothesline, but bushes or wherever. And they and our our textile people at the ROM seem to think that there'd be no problem getting it just white getting by it just getting it white
2: naturally. Yeah. yeah, They seem to think that it was sort of an accident where some milkmaid spilled some on herself. I've and not read anything yeah. like
1: that in in the in the material. And and again, our own textile people seem to think no. They thought it would. Pretty easy to get it and
2: it's bleached very out. Hard
1: process making linen, you know. Whoa, it's just, you know. <laughs> and not only that, they didn't really spin it. You know, no. they um, they roved it. They took single single threads Strengths, of linen, yeah. and they spliced it together on their thigh, and then they plied it, and you get three ply linen. Um, they were pl- read those pictures of, and they they plied it wet, and but they've got these girls. Splicing two one little threads of linen together, and it's just incredible. The man, I mean, the man. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the kind of manpower that that it took. I guess because we don't do it anymore. But they had it, they did it, and they probably worked pretty constantly and consistently at it. I don't know how. I don't know how. They certainly didn't weave linen by lamplight. It had to be done during the daylight hours and and those beads. People had to be of people. That cloisonne had to be of people. yeah. I remember uh, seeing something on a documentary a while ago which interested me. A mummy had been on earth somewhere
0: and uh, they said that the grade of linen that was on the mummy was actually sailcloth, the, a grade of linen that would have been used on, on the little sailing boats that were used on the Nile, and uh, sure. they were able to determine that it was that type because of its crudeness or, or whatever. Yes. And uh, their assessment, the fact that this person had been wrapped in what we would call sailcloth today, was that you know
1: they were finding the mummy of, of an ordinary person sure. or, or someone who just couldn't afford anything else for eternity. Right, and a lot of mummies are wrapped in... <laughs> torn, ripped garments, cast-off garments, you know, garments with holes in them. Sailcloth, exactly, yeah. Yeah, not King Tut, of course. The finest, finest linen, yeah.
0: Is there any evidence about the uh, tunics being uh, sewn up the sides? Yes. And what
1: stitching? And the hemming of what stitching? Rolled hem, generally. A nice, nice little rolled hem. And the stitching... The seaming I forget what kind of a seam it is. It is come and see me afterwards i've probably okay. got it in here okay. i've probably got it in here, but I think it's just an ordinary running stitch seam, I seem to remember, but definitely hems were 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 rolled and stitched, but they're, but they, they they did have a couple of 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 certainly the necks were rolled and stitched to make it nice make the nice little finish off on the necks. And, yeah, stitched up both sides. Then the neck, the neck cut out and rolled. And then your sleeves could be sewn on and removed, depending on the weather. They were removable sleeves. And the king's nemes, uh, was the. when did they show stripes, were they uh, painted on or were they woven into the, the linen? <gasps> no uh, one knows no what idea? that nemesis is made of. Is it leather? No, no crowns extant don't know what crowns were made of. We don't know. Are they leather? Are they metal? Are they starched linen? Have no idea what that Nemes is all about. It's a takeoff of the... That Nemes headdress is a takeoff of your kerchief. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, From earliest times... The, the, the leader, they must have been wearing kerchiefs and then somehow it got decorated and then, then, then it evolved into that Nemes headdress. The Nemes headdress, by the way, is that king's King Tut's famous gold mask. He's wearing the Nemes headdress. It's only the king that wears that. We have no idea. What that's what those are made out. It would be fascinating to find a crown or two. It would be wonderful, but they must have been passed, they must have been passed down, just as the Royal British crowns are passed on for coronations, and then they disappeared, of course.: Why did the women wear wigs? Because they must have had very nice,
2: uh, wavy, dark hair.
1: I know. why did they wear wigs? <laughs> um, again, I think it's a matter of perhaps convenience. To get, get the hair short in the hot, hot weather. Um, and you can have more hair if you've got a wig, although, boy, Egyptian women today have great, great, thick, wavy hair. But also, um, um, to keep long hair in Egypt, I'm not sure how often they would have wanted to wash their hair with salt, with natron. That's pretty hard on the hair. And Egypt is very dusty. Hair becomes matted. The, you know, you know. After, after at the end of a day, my hair that's kind of st- sticking out, and the little village kids who sort of never wash their hair, their hair is like after you know, with all that dust. The hair just kind of sticks straight out with that dust, you know. And there's always this fine dust in the air, so. Hard to keep hair. So I have a feeling that, boy, the wig was aware. It was always available, always ready. If you weren't quite ready you're, if you're yourself. And again, hard to wash the hair. I mean, it was hard. It, until the invention of shampoo in what, the 19th century, even the 20th century, is it? Our, our, our great grannies had a hell of a time with keeping their hair clean and washing it.
0: I'm interested in the cloisonne. What is the difference between the Chinese cloisonne in the Egyptian cloisonne,
1: I don't know enough about Chinese, but I know they're the only people in the world that are doing it now. Are they not? They still have the cheap labor, yeah. but I think it is essentially the same. But I don't know what I don't know how they're soldering. I don't know how they're they're building their cells. But they are doing the cloisonne. Yeah.
0: Are Are they uh, doing it with uh, gemstones? I, I don't seem to see many gemstones in the Chinese cloisonne. And I thought the The vision was with copper wire rather than Mm, maybe it is. but I'm not sure. But
1: you've got me there. I really have not looked into the Chinese... Google it when I get home, I guess. Um, No, I haven't looked into Chinese claws, and all I know is I think they're the only people left in the world doing it. And you're probably right. It's probably done with wire. The Egyptian is not. It's Mm -hmm. done with... They just cut out those thin sheets of gold or wire... square wires of gold, I guess you could call it, and and soldered it on.
0: So then, is Claude and I uh, a technique of jewelry making? And who invented it?
1: Well, I guess the Egyptians did. I don't see it in the the Royal Tombs of Ur. I'm trying to picture the, that stuff in the British Museum, the Royal Tombs of ur I don't think they had it. Mm-hmm. No, I think the Egyptians... Now that's not to say that it's not that it wasn't being done in China separately. It's an invention that easily could be in, invented in two different. It's it's not that hard. As once once you're really into that kind of technology, it's not that. I can understand people inventing it in two separate places. But um, maybe the Chinese was always wire. I don't know that. But the Egyptians certainly not wire. Although they had wires, and they did marvelous things with wires, and we're not sure how they made their wire. Did they pull the gold through a hole in a hard stone, maybe? Again, we don't know. And they had the granulation, these tiny miniature little beads of gold. How did they make the beads? We don't know how did they make the beads. Did they find them that way? And then you've got to stick them on in these beautiful little beaded patterns, and then you've got to solder that or there's, there are some mysteries about Egyptian technology and gold working in particular. It is so fine. It is so good that, you know, maybe it did come from outer space. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: The pyramid builders brought it with them.
2: I just wanted to comment on, back to the wig um, uh, conversation before it changed to the jewelry, um, did the women, do you think, spend maybe more time in the temple shave in the, with their shaved heads? That um, it, there was cause for them to be wearing wigs afterwards when they left the temple?
1: There isn't any evidence of women in the temple shaving their heads. We have no depictions of, of female priests with shaven heads. Female priests are pretty rare, um, although they do exist. Um, females were more or less... Um, they were in charge of certain aspects of the temple of certainly the the, the weaving studios, um, but they they really did not get as high up as men did. They served in the temple generally, they served in the temple as um, sang in the choir sort of thing, you know, rattled that that cistrum and sang songs, and probably um, integral part of course of the of the ceremonies uh singing was very much part of it, but pr- did not serve as, as 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 priest of the day or priest to offer the offerings uh, there was a time where the f- there were female high priests, and definitely they they would have been serving um, because they were in charge of the temple of karnak but that's rare that's kind of an anomaly that's a late development, so no no can't imagine. Very hard for a woman to shave her head, isn't it, in any era? Yeah, I don't no, no. certainly no depictions of a woman with a shaved head. Hello, can you recommend a book that would show, a good book that would show, have good pictures of Egyptian jewelry? Yes, mean? yeah, there are, um, there's a, um, well, there are two excellent books. Uh, there's Carol Andrews, Egyptian Jewelry, it's a British Museum publication. And she'll have an extensive um, uh, bibliography to give you other references. But it's a very good overview. Lots of good pictures. And then there is Cyril Aldred and... Jewels of Ancient Egypt. Now, he is... Carol Andrews has just sort of improved upon Cyril Aldred's version. I think that was a British Museum publication of, as well in the 50s, I think, and Carol Andrews is probably in the 90s. But they work together very, very nicely. And, and Aldred explains colloidal hard soldering. <laughs> okay.
0: Thank you so much Roberta for showing us all of these wonderful objects and depictions of objects. Thank you. I still can't quite get over the earring on the cat. That was a really really nice touch. And thank all of you for for joining us for this talk tonight and the previous five. There's uh, one more talk on the subject of Egypt, which is, of course, Dr. Zahi Huas' lecture this Saturday at Convocation Hall. We still have a few tickets remaining, so if you haven't had a chance to purchase yours, there is still time. That's Saturday, March 6th. And um, our next talk in this space, Jackman Hall, is March 24th. Dietmar Elger, who's a German curator and writer, has written a biography of uh, German painter, contemporary artist Gerhard Richter. So I hope to see some of you then, and uh, thank you for coming out tonight.